Welcome to Faith and Culture, Women in Ministry, presented by Bridgeway Christian Church. My name is Pastor Brian Kiley. This is session three of our four-session Faith and Culture series. If you have not listened to the first two sessions, we would encourage you to do that before proceeding to this one. During session one, we talk about the Old Testament. During session two, we talked about the life of Jesus. And in this session three, we will discuss what the Apostle Paul had to say in scripture about the roles of women in the church. We invite you to listen deeply with an open Bible and an open heart. And if at any time any of this content raises questions for you, please feel free to contact us at askask at bridgeway.church. Now here is Pastor Lance Hahn for session three of Faith and Culture, Women in Ministry. Well, I, I hope you understand how rich our time is together, right? I love being able to see your smiling faces. You know that you're allowed to disagree with me and still smile, amen? Amen. All right. Great. So we're going to be walking through a lot of material. I'm going to be going through it blindingly fast. Uh, at the end of our time together with all those, those four major weeks that we're going to be covering, we're going to make sure to get you some really high quality notes so that you can go back through and do more study on your own. But I'm going to be tackling a lot of heavy material. Yeah, so I would enjoy if you would kind of follow along with me. What we tried to do was grab all the longer passages that were key and make sure that we put those on the screen so you could follow along with us. But wherever I was just going to read, sometimes you'll just see the address up there, which means, you know, if it's in Philippians or what have you, jot those down in your notes. You can always go back and study a little bit later. All right, so let's dive into this. The first week we were together, we talked about how God created mankind with power, diversity, and equality in gender. We talked about how Adam and Eve's disobedience, specifically Eve's curse, led to the hierarchical domination of women. We talked about how God designed Israel into that curse-based foundation to be a living, breathing, spiritual lesson for the world that would lead to a need for a Messiah. The second week we were together, we talked about how Jesus walked into this hierarchical, patriarchal system with Greek and Roman and Jewish influences and led a ministry for three years that defied all those influence. He set up a new covenant, a new way of interacting with God, a new way of interacting with one another. We saw that he broke through taboos and engaged with women in a significantly different way than anyone before him. And he did so, I mentioned, in three significant areas. The first one was how he talked about women. Number two was how he personally interacted with women. And number three, how he integrated women into his ministry. We discussed how Jesus was bringing us back to the pre-fall, the pre-curse, Garden of Eden reality of fulfilled humanity. Now, now that we have this foundation, right, of Christianity in Christ, we turn our attention to the ministry and teachings of one of the most powerful Christian figures in all of history. It is the Apostle Paul week, right? As if you're watching TV and they're at Shark Week, this is Apostle, Apostle Paul week, right? Here we go. He had more to say about women in ministry than any other biblical author. As a matter of fact, it is his teachings that have caused so much of the controversy throughout the years. So we're gonna dive right into them. The goal of dealing with any issues that matter to you 
any life issues is that we are trying to find the heart of God on a matter. That is ultimately our only goal. It doesn't matter whether or not we can make something say something. It doesn't matter whether or not we want the Bible to say something. It only matters what God really wants to say. That is always our goal. That means that we are supposed to pray about it, reflect on it, seek wisdom about it, and search God's word. At Bridgeway, we are high believers in the importance of the word of God. So what you're going to hear me throw at you today is passage after passage, cross-reference after cross-reference. It's all about trying to discern the voice of God in his word, all right? Now, it is important to note that the apostle Paul was clear to himself. He was pretty clear to the people that heard him. But the point is never that Paul messed up, that the Holy Spirit didn't know what he was talking about, You're never going to hear me say, oh yeah, and that was an error. No, 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 we're not talking about an error, we're talking about what was the intention. That's the goal. But as clear as Paul was to himself and to the Lord, he's not always so clear to everybody else. Now, lest we think that there's something wrong with us, let me cite for you our first passage of the evening by citing it from the Apostle Peter. Listen to what he said, I think this is rather comical. 2 Peter 3.15, count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you and according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. If Peter the apostle can't understand Paul the apostle and their contemporaries, we are now what? 2,000 years later, 7,000 miles away. Obviously, there's going to be some catch-up to do, yeah? Once again, it's not just our fault. Sometimes Paul gets a little heady, right? And we're all trying to track with him. But we never throw away complicated passages. That is a great temptation to say, yeah, I don't really get that one. Let's ditch that one. That is not allowable in Christianity. We may have to put some on the back burner until we have clearer understanding. But you cannot simply remove portions out of Scripture. That's unacceptable. It is very tempting to use a general rule of thumb of biblical interpretation that says the clearest reading is most likely correct. Now, in general, you can read things and say, if you're reading a story about a bird, it's probably about a bird, right? It's okay to use that in general, but you can't use it in every case. As a matter of fact, you have to dig in and do a little bit of study Not everything works according to that rule. But I would suggest to you that the homework is worth it. There's always a blessing when you dig into the word of God and let it minister to you deeply. We gotta slow down, put in the necessary time. Unfortunately, many pastors and leaders, and yes, even theologians, have not put in the proper time to study. They've come up and just continued to push what they were taught. I understand their intention, but once again, we need to make sure we do the right amount of work. Yeah? All right. 
I appreciate you joining me on this journey. I'm about to go crazy with information. Here we go. Let's talk about biblical interpretation principles. Right now, you can read the Bible. It is a book, and it was written as letters and things like that. So you can kind of read it as you would most literature. But with all literature, every genre has certain rules that apply to it. You are not allowed to read it outside of its general rules. For example, poetry. Poetry is not written to be read literally. Is that correct? As a matter of fact, if you read it outside of its genre and put literal restrictions on it, you won't understand a word of what is going on. Always read in genre. There's some common principles that we learn when we're studying the Bible. I'm just going to give you a couple to warm you up there. The Bible is most clear on its most important subjects. In other words, in no way do I argue that the Bible is too complicated for people to get saved. Someone that has a remedial ability to read should be able to pick up the Bible and get the gist. What's the gist? God loves me a whole bunch, and I want to be with him forever. How am I going to do that? Well, there's a guy that's Jesus, and it talks about it over and over. So, in no way am I trying to suggest only the brilliant truly get to know God. That is completely absurd. This was written for the every man and the every woman. Now, when you come to a complicated part, usually the clearer parts give you an indicator on how to read the complicated parts. So once again, when you go into a study of the Bible, there are all these helps and all these rules and all these organizational pieces that help you figure out what it really says. Sometimes people get afraid and they say, there's so many denominations out there. There's so many opinions out there. No one can ever know the truth. I would suggest that is incorrect. You just have to put in the right work. Yeah, we can find it. Are there some things that are paradoxes that we do not fully understand? And maybe we will not until the coming of the Lord, perhaps. That's all right to have some mystery. We're not God. That's what trust and faith is for. Yeah, all right. But the biggest rule that we're going to be dealing with today has three words. I would suggest if you're a note taker, you write these down. I might even need you to memorize them. You ready? Context, context, context. Right? Sounds a bit redundant. There is no biblical interpretation rule that I would drive harder than this. Context, context, context. Any literature outside of your current context means you have to study and find some things out. You're trying to get back into the author's shoes when they wrote it, into the audience's shoes when they read it. So here's how you would do that. Things like study the culture of the author. Where did they grow up? When did they grow up? Where were they educated? What do we know about their perspectives? What's going on in the area that they lived? What was happening in the world at the time? What culture was prevalent in their city? You can do all these background studies on that. Then you study the traditions and customs of the day. That's probably one of the most fulfilling studies you can do to unlock scripture. What you want to do is you're trying to figure out what are the common phrases? What are the common analogies and examples and illustrations and figures of speech? What did most people do for a living? How did most people interact? When you know that, 
it becomes more obvious. The other thing is that you study the bigger passage or the bigger book idea and then start to pull in tighter into what you're trying to learn. For example, if I was to cite for you, you know it says in 1 Timothy that Paul said, I do not permit a woman to teach or have authority over a man. If we just draw that one tiny verse out, and it's a portion of a verse, and you microscope in, you're going to say, oh, that's the end of the story. The problem is it's part of a bigger passage. That passage is part of a bigger book. If whatever conclusion you come to on that disagrees with the context, you're probably not reading it correctly. Yeah? All right. Study what the author did with their information in real life. How did it flesh out? For example, John, when you read John, who Jesus called the beloved, when you read his gospels or his letters, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, when you read, he seems to be very strict and a little bit harsh. He talks about light and darkness and black and white, and, and he seems very kind of, and you would kind of go, wow, that feels a little harsh. But do you also see that in the books like Second John, he'll say things like, my dear children. He'll talk in, in very soft ways. Once again, how did these people really live it out will give you much more of an indicator I'm a perfect example as your pastor because the stuff I say sometimes is brutal. I say some really, really harsh and black and white things, but because you know me, you know I have a smile on my face, you know my demeanor is very huggy, I'm always running around hugging everybody, you know I'm a very soft person, it changes how you hear me. Does that make sense? Well, in the same way, we have to look for example, I was reading earlier today, Paul the Apostle had someone reflect back on his letters and they said, man, that guy sure talks a big game in his letters. When I see him, he's not all that impressive. He's actually not even that good of a speaker. And Paul was reacting to that in his letters saying, whoa, 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 I get it. I don't come across very well, but that doesn't mean I'm not serious. So we got to see how did it flesh out the other thing is to study the nuances of the language it was written in. Many of you probably already know that, but in general, the majority of the Old Testament is written in an ancient form of Hebrew. The New Testament majority is written in a very simplified street Greek. And depending on the author, the varying levels of education of how they use the Greek show up. Some you can tell are highly uneducated, some are much more educated. So even within the books, the nuances are different, all right? The point of all of this is what is the author's intention? You may have an opinion on a subject, but you're not allowed to have an opinion until you first understand what the author was trying to say. Then you can have an opinion on what he really meant to say. Now, you go, gosh, this sounds so complicated. Sounds so confusing. I don't want to read the Bible if this is so hard right? You're doing it all the time. As a matter of fact, if I had you teach me anything out of the Bible, you'll do it and not even realize you're doing it. I'll give you an example. In the very passages we are studying about women in ministry, it says, women, you're not allowed to wear expensive jewelry. You're not supposed to talk anywhere within the church building. 
And it says you should have a head covering. I don't see one head covering. I would suggest from the tone in the room, not everybody was quiet, right? And I don't have anyone beating down my door saying, do you know how expensive her earrings are? How come those don't bother you? Paul said it blatantly. You somehow, I hope, did your homework and went, that's not for me in the same way today. But yet we'll take those out and leave others in. I would suggest, and I'll have a word a little later, on consistency. Let's make sure we're a little bit more consistent in how we interact with God's word. All right, let's pick up Paul's church context. You do realize that Paul the apostle was not around with Jesus, yeah? Are we all clear that by the time he came on the scene, he comes in as a persecutor of this new Christian church. Jesus was already gone. The church, fledgling church was already up and running and he came in and brought some attack. He then gets saved later and joins into an existing church. So, as much as we want to talk about Paul setting up things in Europe and doing massive ministry to the Gentiles in Asia, and we can talk about all these powerful things that he did, he was not part of the original crew. When he came in, he had a learning curve because that's not how he grew up. So let's talk a little bit about female involvement in the early church. Female involvement in the early church. That means we're going to be looking in the book of Acts, yeah? So let's talk about Pentecost. I mentioned last week that the 120 that were in the upper room were male and female. The Bible is very clear in articulating that both men and women were in the room. The Bible is also clear. And tongues of fire came from the Holy Spirit on each one of them. It didn't skip the ladies and just go to the dudes. It was on all of them. As a matter of fact, I argued the Bible's super clear that the women weren't there accidentally, they were there intentionally. When Peter stepped out of Pentecost, he did a, a sermon, and in the sermon he said, you guys do realize this is all a fulfillment of a Joel prophecy that says sons and daughters will prophesy. Women in ministry was coming, so it wasn't an accident. Does that make sense? All right, good, good, good. Then all of a sudden we see that the Holy Spirit starts distributing gifts. We call them spiritual gifts, right? And, and really the truest gift that we have is the Holy Spirit himself. He just happens to come with cool stuff, right? So he kind of doles out these, these little special empowerments. Now, spiritual gifts are given equally. 1 Corinthians 12, seven through 11. We realize that God distributes his gifts without distinction of gender. How do we know that? Because 1 Corinthians 11.5 shows women get the gift of prophecy. If the gifts are gender neutral, it follows that men and women are to use their gifts equally in the church. And this is something I need you to pay attention to. All gifts were given so that they could be used in the church. Once again, got to step out of your modern day mindset. Bridgeway is not the structure of the early church. They did not have men's ministry, women's ministry, children's ministry. They were a home church, and they're all in the same room. 
And it says, if you're going to use them in church, you use them for everybody. So if they're gender neutral and they're being used in the general assembly, you can't say an argument, well, that was just women using it with women. They didn't have that structure. All right. Here's the other thing that's interesting. Everyone seems to agree that women taught women with utilizing some teaching gift, right? I don't know anyone that argues that women don't get the teaching gift, but they'll say women used it with women. But here's the problem. If you link the gift list of 1 Corinthians 12, 28, Ephesians 4, 11, and 1 Corinthians 14, 19, it ties apostleship, prophecy, and pastor-teacher gifts all together. It would be very odd if women were only allowed to be apostles to women or only prophets to women. So why would they only be teachers to women? You're starting to put the pieces together and going, huh, something's odd here. Then Paul lays out this foundational principle about what gifts are most important. 1 Corinthians 12, 28, right? Apostleship is mentioned first. It's the most important gift. Can we all settle on that? All right. In verse 31, Paul says, eagerly desire the higher gifts. How are women supposed to eagerly desire apostleship if it's not for them? Huh, that's strange. Was 1 Corinthians only written to men? It was not. So shouldn't women seek to be apostles, prophets, preacher, teachers? In context, it would make sense. All right. Here's the other thing. When Paul talked to Timothy, he was telling him general truths that he could share with the rest of the church. This is one we tend to quote a lot. What is it? 2 Timothy 3, 16 through 17. I'll put that up on the screen. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. That the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. You know what's a little odd about that phrase? First of all, we all think it applies to all of us until we get technical. And then you go, but it says man of God, except the word in Greek is anthropos, which is, can be men, women, or gender neutral. So if indeed you're using a term that is very general every time it says my brothers in the faith. He means my brothers and sisters in the faith. If you're using that same phrase here, shouldn't women be able to use Scripture for those things? All right, we'll keep moving forward. God was working independently with women in the early church before Paul got involved. I'll give you an example. There's a famous story of Sapphira. Anybody remember who that is? So Ananias and Sapphira were brand new early Christians in the fledgling church, and they came up with this idea as they saw everybody was getting some serious credit for big gifts to the church. People were selling fields, they were selling houses, and they would bring all their money and lay it before the apostles. And the apostles would go, oh my goodness, look at what brother so-and-so did. Look at what sister so-and-so did. So they came up with this idea. We can get all the credit, but we got to keep back some of the money and we'll let them think we gave it all. Well, if you remember, the whole idea was that 
Ananias, the husband, comes first and gives the money. And Peter's like, is this all of it? Because he knew from the Holy Spirit it wasn't legit. And he's like, yep, that's all of it. He's like, yeah, that's a bummer. The dude falls down dead. Three hours later, his wife walks in, Sapphira. Hey, so your husband was here earlier. He brought me some money. Where'd you guys get that? Oh, that was all the proceeds. I'm sorry, did you say it was all the proceeds? Yeah, totally. Yeah, see the guys carrying that bag out? Yeah, that would be your dude. And bye-bye. She dies. Okay, now when we read that story from a modern mindset, first of all, we're all freaked out that that's going to happen to us. Second thing, which by the way, we're going to be taking an offering later today. (laughs) Here's what's so unique about that story. Context. In the ancient world, you did not deal with women directly. You dealt through their fathers or their husbands. You did not talk to them directly. They were not allowed to make agreements on their own. And God said, this has nothing to do with her husband. And he killed her for her own decisions. When you don't read the context, you just blow right by it and it's no big deal. God was setting up a whole new way of doing things. All right, then all of a sudden in Acts 17, we find these Thessalonian leading women. What does that mean? Paul and Silas are doing all this ministry in Thessalonica, and they're in the synagogue, they're reasoning reasoning from the scriptures, and all these people got saved. It says, and a bunch of Greeks got saved, and quote, many leading women. That's interesting. Why did he highlight that? If for Luke to say that means that these women were prominent in wealth or prominent in influence, and usually those two went together, what was the point? Paul began ministering and reasoning with women and they were getting saved and they were super influential. So they got written down. Here's another one. Luke and Paul start getting involved in ministry and they go to Philip's house. Anybody remember who Philip is? Philip is one of the original deacons. There were seven of them. The only two that you're familiar with are probably Stephen, the first Christian martyr, and Philip. These guys were not your normal waiters. You know, it says they were table servers. Yeah, most table servers I know are not so lit up with the Holy Spirit that they're doing radical miracles. These are not normal men. Well, Philip had a family. He ended up having four daughters. They all prophesied. So imagine dad is super miracle guy and all the four daughters, this is a highly spiritual house. Yeah? Here's what's interesting. It says, his four daughters prophesied. And you go, yeah, so what? Eusebius, an ancient historian, said, quote, Philip's daughters were among the first stage in the apostolic succession. What was his point? We know they were such a big deal that it looked like it went straight from Peter and his crew, and they were the next wave of leadership. Now, that's an ancient historian mentioning that. That's interesting. But it brings up a point that I'm going to highlight multiple times. And that is the issue that some people struggle that women would preach from the pulpit. But they all have to agree that Paul gave instructions that women prophesy. To me, there's a problem with consistency. Here's why. You guys know what the gift of prophecy is, yes? 
The gift of prophecy is speaking for God. Now, in the Old Testament, it was one level. They didn't have scripture to match it up against. It was thus saith the Lord, and you either took it or you didn't. And the way those people were judged was so hardcore. If you remember, if you were wrong, you got stoned to death. We ain't playing around. In the New Testament, the gift shifted because everyone had the Holy Spirit. It wasn't just one person. So now when a prophecy is given, everyone gets to judge it with the Holy Spirit clarifying it. So it's a very different environment. But the gift is still the same. You're talking for God. All right? What do I do up here at the pulpit? Almost every week, I would say every week, but I'm sure somewhere I've messed up. Almost every week, I come up with my Bible and I open it up and I read a passage and then I comment on it. Is that correct? What's more dangerous, a commenter or the actual deliverer of revelation from God? So how is it that we're all cool with women prophesying publicly direct from God but they can't comment on it. That seems a little odd to me. So once again, well, let's be a little bit more consistent. Ephesians 2.20 says the whole church structure was founded on the apostles and the prophets. They're linked. Most important gifts in the entire church, apostles and prophets. We already know that women are prophets, Old Testament, New Testament. So they're the foundation gifting of the church. Oh, Interesting. Even if you don't see women being apostles, and later on I'm going to argue you will, they're clearly prophets. That's authority. All right. Paul instructs women on how to prophesy in the church, right? 1 Corinthians 11, 4 through 5. And by definition, prophecy is a public act done in the general assembly of men and women. That's, Paul not only says that women have the gift, the calling, and office of a prophet, but they do it in a mixed group setting. Huh. Let's talk about another group. The prominent Greek women of Berea in Acts 17, 10 through 12, a bunch of ladies got saved in Paul's ministry, and it says this, many of them believed with not a few Greek women of high standing, oh, and as well as men. Why is Luke highlighting out all these important women getting saved? One thing that's really interesting to me is Paul seems to have no concerns or problems ministering directly to women. But that was never, where did he learn that from? That's not a Jewish thing. He learned it from Jesus. Jesus broke that taboo. Jesus started doing that. So Paul's following in his footsteps. Great, follow my example as I follow Christ, he said. But here's another interesting insight. Saul persecuted female leaders. In Acts 8.3, it says, and Saul was putting men and women into prison for being Christians. Real quick, in modern day warfare, if women are not part of the battle, you leave them alone. In the Middle East, that's still the rule. You don't go after women, you don't go after kids. The only way you do that is if they're involved in the battle. Why was Paul throwing women in jail? 
because women were leaders and you gotta get them out of there. They're influencers. The very idea that he arrested them shows you what type of influence they had before he even became a Christian. All right, let's jump right into Paul's context. I kind of weaved in and out of talking about Paul before Paul, a little bit with him, but let's talk about his context directly. He did not have the benefit of growing up around Jesus, right? He wasn't in the, even in that same area. Jesus grew up in Northern. He probably grew up uh, because we know that he was in Tarsus, right? We know he was in a whole separate part of the world, right? But let's talk about his context. Paul could not be more old school Jewish. Yeah? Give you a couple examples. He was, grew up in a patriarchal and hierarchical culture. I already laid that out in week one. Second one, the Bible says he was schooled by Gamaliel. Gamaliel was one of the most famous rabbinic teachers of all time. He was the grandson of Hillel. The reason why that matters is in Jesus' day, everyone argued that there was two big schools of thought that went head to head, the school of Hillel and the school of Shammai. That's how famous they were. Gamaliel was the grandson of one of those major schools. He ran the school for his great-grandfather. Paul was in that. You don't get a more heavy rabbinic training than that. So he was heavily rabbi. Third, he was unmarried. We, know, we don't know if he was divorced. We don't know if he was widowed. We just know that by the time Paul gets saved and writes scripture, he is single. That is significant because all men have to go through a learning curve when they get married. It is, oh shoot, I've never seen the world this way, and now I'm learning as fast as I can because I keep getting in trouble. The reason why I mention that is that the Holy Spirit moves through the authors, but they're really human people. So whether they say something sweetly or mean, they're still growing up. Does that make sense? He didn't have any of that, so he's probably going to be very blatant about what he says, especially when it comes to women. Here's the next one. He was a Pharisee. The Bible is very clear on that. He argues he was a Pharisee. Pharisees were the most stringent, trained, old-school law people. They were only allowed to be men. Now, here's what's intriguing about it. Pharisees, to be a great one, were married by 18. Why was Paul single? There's only one stream of Pharisee that didn't get married. The most hardcore so here's my point. He's not just an Orthodox Jew. He's an extreme Orthodox Jew. So if you want to talk about rabbinic tradition, this guy's all in. Because the last one is he was a persecutor. Not everybody was a persecutor. He was. As a matter of fact, Gamaliel wouldn't have been. Gamaliel was noted in Scripture as trying to defend the disciples. Guys, I know you guys want to kill these dudes, but what if they're doing something with God? You're not going to be able to stop it. He was the guy that said that. So his master said, back off, and he didn't even follow his master. He was more extreme than his own master. This is not a normal guy. The last piece I'll highlight about his context is he had a radical conversion. He tells his story 
over and over and over. I was going one direction. I saw God, and he told me, you're not on my team. And I became struck blind, and then I had a guy pray over me. I got my sight back like scales fell from my eye. The whole rest of his life, he was unlearning what he had learned. He said, I consider everything before this rubbish. I don't even care about it anymore. He's still in a developmental process as far as unlearning different things. Now, okay, let's talk about Paul's usage of women in ministry. How Paul acted toward women gives significant insight as to what he says in his teachings. So I'm going to use one example out of women issues to make my point. And I highlighted it in prayer weeks. Paul said on multiple occasions, slaves, obey your masters. As a matter of fact, one of his passages, he said, slaves, obey your masters in everything. That kind of leaves no rebellion, no revolution, no opportunity to overturn slavery. If you just read that, you would say, Paul is pro-slavery. But then you stumble across a book called Philemon. And in this little baby book, Paul has an ex-slave who was a runaway, which violated the very code Paul had already laid down, accepts him in, treats him as his own, puts all of his money behind him, his reputation behind him, and demands that he be set free because it's not right that one would own another one. They're equal in God's eyes. If you don't look at how Paul lived, you're not going to fully understand Paul's teaching. How did he live? He put everything on the line to stop slavery when it was in front of him. Now you got to look back at his other ones and realize his teaching meant this. Guys, if there's nothing you can do, I need you to live like Jesus in your difficulty because God's character needs to shine through you. Does that make sense? But it gives you a new feel for his instructions. All right, so let's talk about how Paul acted towards women. Paul utilized women in his ministry and he highlighted them. This is very important. Paul mentions 12 female co-workers by name in the ministry with him. So guess what I did? I'm a little Bible nerd. So I went through and examined all the men he mentioned and all the women he mentioned. Guess what? Out of all of his co-workers in ministry, women were 17% of all his co-workers. That's a big percentage, you guys. If he was really anti-women in ministry, why did he personally name 17% of his entire Christian workforce as female? It's very weird. All right, let's talk about him, yeah? First convert in Europe, that's Lydia, Acts 16, 11 through 15. It says this, and on the Sabbath day, he went outside the gate, this is Paul, to the riverside, where we suppose there was a place of prayer. We sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized and her household as well, 
She urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. In Acts 16.40, it refers to her again, and there's a church in her house. There's no mention of a dude at all. Interesting, first convert in all of Europe is a female. That's strange. Shouldn't we always lead with men? Probably not always. Paul mentions a man who was the first convert in Asia. So it could be men or female. But it's interesting that the one of Asia was male and the one of Europe was female. It's almost like he was saying, yeah, they're kind of the same. Paul had no problem ministering to women openly, in public, no matter what people would say, because Paul, too, was a rabbi. Then there's two church house leaders, right? A house church. Everybody know what the early churches were just house churches, yeah? Well, there's two of them named, two house church leaders that were female. Interesting. The first one, her name is Chloe. 1 Corinthians 1.11, it says this, For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. Let's stop. Chloe's people? What do you mean Chloe's people? What, does she got like a crew? Right? You wouldn't say that unless this whole group was under her influence. So if you're writing and saying there's a problem in the church, he's like, hey, everybody knows who the boss is? Yeah, yeah, that's Chloe. Okay, cool. So some of her people have been talking to me. There was no male headship mentioned. Here's the other one, Nympha, which by the way, super rough name. Nympha of Colossians 4.15, Paul says this, Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. That's pretty clear. Usually, you wouldn't just be the host of the house, not over there. You would actually be the leader of the house as well. Okay, so we got two of those. Here's four other notable ladies who, quote, worked hard in the ministry. In Romans 16.6 and 12, Four ladies are mentioned. Number one, Mary. By the way, everyone's name is Mary in the Bible, if you're female. Romans 16, 6, greet Mary who has worked hard for you. Tryphena and Tryphosa in Romans 16, 12, greet those workers in the Lord. Tryphena and Tryphosa. Then there's Persis, greet the beloved Persis who has worked hard in the Lord. You go, I get it. These ladies are hard workers. No, you don't. Hard workers is code for leaders. It's how Paul talked about all his dudes too. When you say hard workers, he's talking about they were in charge and they were in danger for you. That's what he means. We have another notable fellow worker. Her name is Aphia. In Philemon 1 through 2, to Philemon, our beloved fellow worker, to Aphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and the church in your house. Paul doesn't just mention random people. In between fellow soldier and fellow worker is Aphia, their sister. Why is she mentioned there? You only address leadership. Does it say that she's a church, uh, house church leader? It's in her house. doesn't say. Who knows what it means? All I'm saying is that Paul wouldn't have put her in between two of these big power dogs for no reason. You're like, but he just calls her a sister. Yeah, but look at the order 
in which it was written in. All right, here's one I want to take a moment on, and that is Paul's fellow workers, Priscilla and Aquila. We read about them in Acts 18.2, 18 through 26. They're in the same business as Paul. They're tent makers. So Paul comes into town, ends up meeting the guy first, that's Aquila, and they strike up a friendship. He gets connected, meets the wife, Priscilla, and then they end up doing ministry together. So they work together, they do ministry together. Here's what's so important. Priscilla taught Apollos. Here's how we know that. In 1 Corinthians uh, 9.5, we know that the Bible is clear that Peter and other apostles and leaders traveled with their wives. They were, they were not the only married couple. But Priscilla, the female, is mentioned before her husband four out of five times. Order is important in how you write it. So, the vast majority, she's named before her husband. You don't do that in the ancient world unless she's more influential, all right? But here's what's interesting. It says in all these passages that she and her husband taught and led Apollos as their disciple. But if she's mentioned first, she took the lead. So she's training one of the greatest preachers of that time because Apollos ended up being a really, really big deal. So, she, so you have females discipling males. You're like, yeah, but her husband was there. Cool. All I'm telling you is she's more prominent than he is. She was the primary. 2 Timothy 2, 1 through 2. You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus and what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses in trust to faithful men who will be able to teach others. Once again, you know what the real word is? Anthropos. Gender neutral. Let's read it again. What you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men and women who will be able to teach others also. Guys, it's all over the place. Let's pick up two more. Euodia and Syntyche. Right? Philippians 4, 2 through 3. Paul says, I entreat Yodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord, meaning they're having conflict. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel. What? Paul considered what he did really intense. You guys remember how he treated John Mark when John Mark wimped out on him? John does not suffer a fool. Paul's really hardcore. So he said, they have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Oh, but it only gets more intense. Let's talk about Phoebe the deacon, right? Phoebe, the trusted minister, Romans 16, one through two. He says, I commend to you, meaning I'm sending to you, our sister Phoebe, a diakonos of the church at Centria, that you may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints and help her in whatever way she may need from you. For she has been a patron of many and of myself as well. The word for servant is diakonos. That's how Paul referred to Apollos, Epaphras, Timothy, and himself. Same word, Right? Most scholars believe she was the one that took the letter of Romans to Rome. The reason why that's important is because whoever brought the letter, opened the letter, read the letter, and taught the letter. 
Phoebe is a big deal. Let's just put it that way, right? It was very likely that she was the leader, including preacher and teacher of the church at Centria, and she is mentioned first in the list of all the people in the book of Romans. Before any other man, she's the first one out of the gate. That's important. What's a deacon? Well, this is a very tricky word because with Jesus, he teaches an upside-down economy. The higher the title, the greater the servant. The higher the title, the greater the servant. That means any titles are not supposed to puff up the person. They're supposed to tell you who you serve. The highest level would be considered maybe episkopos. That means overseer, but it's still a very loving term. A deacon is diakonos. It just means servant. So you have a hard time in the Bible trying to pick out who are the big dogs because they keep using low terms. But when you start matching them with who gets those terms, you start realizing it's a big deal. All right? For example, the reason why we know this is important is Philippians 1.1. Paul says, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons. That means that they are a classification of leadership. Elders are the ones that made the rules. The deacons were the ones that ran day to day. Does that make sense? What do they do? Well, I told you the original list of deacons is in Acts chapter 6 through 8, and that's Stephen and Philip, the miracle worker. Once again, these are not, I got coffee. These are not the, I had nothing else to do today, right? That's not these people. These people are a big deal. Are deacons only men? Clearly not, because we have the diakonos word used for women. Right here, we have Phoebe. But here's the problem. When you look up the list of deacon requirements in 1 Timothy 3, 8 through 11, depending on which Bible translation you read, it will say, this is how deacons are supposed to be, and their wives are supposed to be like this. But you read another translation, and it says, male deacons are supposed to be like this, female deacons are supposed to be like this. Depends on how you want to read the passage. But here's what's intriguing to me. The list between the men and the women are identical. There's one added thing, and that was men are not allowed to be greedy for money. That was added on there. But here's what's interesting. An ancient historian named Pliny the Younger was writing to Trajan the emperor and said he tortured two Christian deaconesses. Why would you torture them? Because they're leadership. Once again, female deacons, leaders. Now, here's the problem. When you read out the passage, you start going, well, wait a second. A deacon and an elder have to be the husband of one wife. Isn't that what the passage says? Then how come Paul's using it for women? Wait a second. Because the whole point didn't mean that they had to be male. It meant that their character had to be a one-woman type of man. Now, if it's a woman, she'd have to be a one-man type of woman. It's a character reference. How do we know that? Because it also says that childless and unmarried men cannot be in leadership either. But no one seems to argue that. 
Are there pastors that are single? Why is anyone having a problem with that? Because aren't they supposed to be the husband of one wife? You're like, yeah, yeah, but, but he's not there yet. Oh, so you're telling me that it's not literal. Oh, and he must manage his household well and his children. What if he doesn't have children? Yeah, yeah, he's, they're going to. They are, huh? You know that. Following the reasoning, elder requirements don't restrict women either. But it says elders have to be the husband. I thought we already covered that. Right. Hmm. If, a, if he's a man, his character must be such. If it's a female, the character must be such. And this is the picking and choosing that I am not comfortable with. Be consistent. Be consistent. If you're going to take the Bible literal, you better go old school Amish because we're going to get into some serious trouble if you don't. We don't get to pick and choose. You got to follow. Either some things are cultural or they're not. All right. How about Junia? This is an important piece here. You guys know who Junia is? A lot of debate. All right, here we go. Romans 16, 7. You probably blew past it and didn't even think it was a big deal. Check this out. Romans 16, 7. Paul says, Greet Andronicus and Junia, my countrymen and my fellow prisoners, who are of note among the apostles, who were also in Christ before me. Huh. That doesn't sound like a big deal, does it? Well, here's what's interesting. Just said something about an apostle. What's an apostle? Well, apostle actually just means sent out one, but we get into some pretty heavy debates about who's an apostle and who's not, right? Um, you got kind of two categories of apostles. One, people don't like the idea that possibly Paul just called Junia an apostle, a female, an apostle. You go, I didn't hear that. All right, we'll get to that. But let me explain something. The reason why people don't want Junia to be female and an apostle is they're like, uh-oh, those are the big dogs. Like that's Peter and the crew, right? Because it said Jesus had a bunch of disciples and out of those disciples, he selected 12 and he called them apostles. Are you sure those are the only apostles? Because if that's the case, Paul can't be one. Right? Oh, well, dang. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, we got to throw him in there. Well, hold on. Barnabas is called an apostle. James is called an apostle. So clearly, we don't have one strict group of apostles. So what does apostle mean? Practically speaking, apostle means an extra authority leader in Christ who is empowered and sent by God so that they are an authority in the matter. You following me? All right. Apostle became synonymous with an ambassador of Christ with authority as a leader. There is no higher title. All right. So here's the two debates. Is Junia a female or is it Junius a male? Well, this is interesting because depending on which Bible translation you read, they'll change it. That's kind of uncomfortable, isn't it? All right. Interesting. N.T. Wright, if you guys are familiar with that theologian, he said, in Romans 16, 7, Paul names a female apostle Junia. Not a single historical or exegetical argument is available to say that she was a man, despite some arguing of it. 
early church Christian fathers, John Chrysostom in AD 349 to 407, said it was a female. Origen of Alexandria of 185 to 245, female. Jerome, and it goes on and on. Martin Luther, the head of the Reformation, said in his version of 1522 that it was a female. Here's what John Chrysostom, church father, wrote. He said, greet Andronicus and Junia, distinguish among the apostles. To be an apostle is a great thing, but to be distinguished among them, consider what an extraordinary accolade that is. They, that man and woman, were distinguished because of their works, because of their upright deeds. Indeed, how great was the wisdom of this woman that she was thought worthy of being called an apostle. We're not in a modern debate here, you guys. We're going way back, right? So the debate is, is it a dude's name or a girl's name? Even if you scroll over it in Logos, it's feminine in Greek. But people are still changing it into dude because they don't want a woman tied to apostle. All right. How did it call her an apostle? Because there's two ways to read this. Either it says that Junia and this other guy were known by the apostles or they were outstanding among the apostles. Which way is it? Well, it depends on which Bible you read. Here's the problem with it. 83 out of the 90 English translations say that she was an apostle, but seven don't. Guess what? ESV that we read at Bridgeway says she's not. One of the seven. Seven out of 90? Are you kidding me? Once again, there's a bias, right? How does it read? The most natural read in Greek is they were outstanding of the apostles. So now you have a female named as an apostle. And she wasn't any apostle. She was a big deal. Let's talk about the teachings of Paul. Yeah? That's called context, you guys. So is he going to be favorable towards women in ministry or unfavorable? Well, you just saw his life. Whatever he's about to say is going to seem very odd if he was not pro-women in ministry. Huh. Here we go. The key passages of debate in Paul's teachings are these. There are six. We will only handle two. 1 Timothy 2, 8 through 15. 1 Corinthians 11, 3 through 16. 1 Corinthians 14, 26 through 40. Galatians 3. 25 through 29, 1 Corinthians 11, 7 through 12, Ephesians 5, 21 through 33. The majority of those have to do with husbands and wives and the interaction in the home, but we do have a couple that talk about church, so we're going to study the two most important ones, and that's 1 Corinthians 14 and Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 2. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians 14, 33. 1 Corinthians 14, 33. Here's what Paul said. We'll start the second half of verse 33. As in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches. I'm reading out of the ESV. For they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission, as the law also says. If there's anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. Well, that's a pretty power-punched passage, yeah? What did he just say? 
women, all women should be silent and not speak. If there's anything you want to know at church, do not talk out. You go home, you ask your husband. That's what it said. Now, what's funny is I don't know any congregation that does this. Not one, but it's pretty there in black and white, right? Okay, so what does it mean? By the way, women can't be in ministry in the church if they're not allowed to talk. Are we all clear on that one? Like, that's a cut, okay? Um, so is it accurate? Here's the main problem with this passage. It cannot mean what we think it means. And here's why. Context, context, context. Let's read the bigger context, yeah? 1 Corinthians 14, 26. Let's back up. What then, brothers? Ah, oh, there we got that word again. You mean brothers and sisters. Right, yeah, that's what I meant. Okay. What then, brothers and sisters, when you all come together, every one of you has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. If any speak in a tongue, there should only be two or at the most three in each in turn and let someone interpret. But if there's no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in church and speak to himself and to God. Let two or three prophets speak and let the others weigh what is said. If a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent. For you can all prophesy, you can all prophesy one by one so that all may learn and all be encouraged. And the spirits of the prophets are subject to prophets. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. And as in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches, for they're not permitted to speak, but should be in submission, as the law also says. If there's anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home. For it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. Or was it from you that the word of God came? Are you the only ones that has reached? If anyone thinks that he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I am writing to you are a command of the Lord. If anyone doesn't recognize this, he is not recognized. So my brothers and sisters, earnestly desire to prophesy and do not forbid speaking in tongues, but all things should be done decently and in order. All right, I'm gonna give you three reasons why I can't mean what it means. Right? Because you're all gonna say, oh, I know what it means, do you? Okay, here we go. Number one, it can't mean women are excluded from ministry. Why? Because in verse 26, it says, brothers and sisters, here's what we're doing when we come together in a community. When you all come together, each one of you has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. So, right off the bat, we already know they're all involved in ministry, so we can't just have a whole gender silenced. That doesn't work. I'm going to give you a side note on this. Um, remember I told you, and I'm going to mention this a couple times, remember I told you that the word woman and wife are the same? Man and husband are the same? You have to figure it out in context, Right? Are you telling me this is not better translated wife? There's one simple reason why, you guys. Because what's the solution? Where are they supposed to learn? At home with their what? Huh, what if you're single? Oh, sorry, you have no answer. You just have to be quiet and never learn. What if you're widowed? You got no answer. 
you can't learn because anyone that this is talking to should go to their husbands at home. Don't you think they mean wives? Much better translation, yeah? All right, we'll keep moving. Number two, it can't mean permanently silent. How do we know? I'll give you five reasons. Number one, everything the Holy Spirit is bringing, a hymn, lesson, revelation, tongue, and interpretation, they're all verbal. Every instruction the Holy Spirit brought for you to use in church is verbal. It can't mean silent. That doesn't make any sense. And here's the other thing. The word for having a lesson is didikin. It means teaching. And if they're all getting a teaching, but they can't teach, that seems a little odd. Number two, if you go ahead three chapters back, in the same book, Paul says in 1 Corinthians eleven four, every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head, but every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. In other words, you just gave instructions that women are being verbal and they're supposed to wear a head covering. In the same book, it can't be silent if you just told them how to do it when they're talking. There's something wrong here. Number three, everyone's involved. Verse 31, you can all prophesy one by one. That's verbal. Number four, the term silent is used multiple times in this passage, and it never means permanent silence. It means orderliness. Whatever's going on here was disruptive, and you're not allowed to disrupt. Hey, if you got a prophecy, you need to be silent. It doesn't mean forever. It means have your turn. That's what it means. So whatever's going on with these wives, you need to wait your turn. There's a proper time for this and not a proper time. You guys are causing problems, right? Number five, Paul encourages women to seek prophecy and tongues. 1 Corinthians 14, 39, my brothers and sisters earnestly desire to prophesy and do not forbid speaking in tongues. Those are all verbal. How are they supposed to do that if they're silent? Doesn't make any sense. So third major reason that this can't mean what do you think it means? Can't mean women have to only use husbands because of the unsaved spouses, the single and the widowed. The church was full of these. They can't go home and ask their husbands. That's it. You guys, there's no way this means what it literally says. Paul's talking about something very specific because he just blew himself out of the water about 14 times. So what's Paul trying to correct and how? The context of the entire book of Corinthians is they were super spiritually gifted and they were way out of control. Everything Paul is trying to teach that church is we need to restore order. You guys are all over the place. So whatever mandates are given, it's because the church was being chaotic. How do we restore order? It's all Paul cares about. Okay? Whatever these wives were doing, and we already know it's not women, it's wives. Whatever these wives were doing, it was distracting could be that they were asking their husbands in the middle of the service and they were disrupting. He's like, hey, take it outside. We're not doing that. You want to know something, wait till you get home. We're not doing that. 
Maybe it was just talking because they didn't understand. Maybe they were talking over their husbands in a pushy way. But here's what's interesting. Why did Paul just silence women? Why would Paul silence wives? Why wouldn't he say this? Ladies, you need to hang out together and you need to teach each other. No, whatever the problem was, he said, stop doing it totally. So obviously there was a distraction, not a proper teaching. He didn't redirect them for women to be with women. He just said, be silent completely. They were doing something inappropriate and it's never okay, right? Now let's talk about the big one as we close out. Yeah, here we go. Turn with me to 1 Timothy 2, 8 through 15. Paul said this, I want men everywhere to lift up holy hands in prayer without anger or disputing. I also want women to dress modestly with decency and propriety, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or expensive clothes, but with good deeds appropriate for women who profess to worship God. A woman should learn in quietness and full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man. She must be silent. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. But women will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with propriety. Okay, this is the big one. This is the one that shuts down women being in the boardroom or women being in the pulpit. So, I do not permit a woman to... Hold up. Are you sure that's what it said? You sure it didn't say I do not permit a wife? Okay, it makes way more sense for wives than women. Why? Because in 1 Peter chapter 3, there's almost an identical passage. Women, you're not supposed to wear your hair fancy. You're not supposed... The same passage, but Peter is talking to wives. Why would it suddenly just be women in general when the other context is wives? Here's the second reason why it should be wives and not women. Because it says they're to learn quietly with submissiveness. And the only time that Paul talks about submissiveness is wives to husbands. He never says all women submit to all men. In case you wanted to know a third reason, the answer to the woman's problem was childbearing. But what if she's not married? What if she's widowed? Once again, the context not right. You can't have women that they need to be submissive to. Hold up. That's a wife thing. That's not a woman thing. All right? Here's, this, here's the result so far. Wives, you don't get to teach or have authority over your husbands. That's the only context that works. The other one completely falls apart. All right, does that still not leave us a problem? Because we still have a lot of married women in our church, right? So if a woman is married, she's not allowed to teach or have authority over her husband. How in the world is she supposed to be in the pulpit? How is she supposed to be in the boardroom? All right, let's talk about that. Now, there's a very, very important piece to this. I teach firmly that both the church and the home have very clear roles with hierarchy in them. Does everybody understand that? I do not teach sameness. So, for example, in the church, I believe that Jesus Christ is the head of the church, and the rest of us 
are kind of sorting it out. Does that make sense? And our hierarchy is designed by calling and gifting, not by gender. But in the home, it's gender-based, okay? Husbands over wives. Now, we opt into the marriage system. Well, I don't think that's unfair. Okay, don't get married. You opted into it. You're saying, I want to submit under a new system where God's going to work a hierarchy through the man into the woman. So if you don't want that, do what Paul said to do. Remain single. Then you're not submitting to anybody. The Bible says in Ephesians 5.22, submit one to another out of reverence for Christ. When we're in church, we all mutually submit to one another because we already have our head. But in the home, you don't have many heads. You only have one. That's a husband. If you don't want that, don't get married. That was Paul's point. I'd rather you be unmarried and be free from all these problems. But if you want to get married, you're choosing to go into a hierarchy. It's your call. So, are we having all wives silent in the church? No. Here's why. What's the word teach mean in the Bible? Ready? Here's what it means. Teach. That was unhelpful, I understand. It's just a simple, normal word for sharing information, okay? So everyone's like, ooh, I thought there was something big there. Nope. But here's what's interesting. The solution to whatever's going on, again, what's the solution? Absolute silence and quietness. Why would Paul ever shut down conversation? unless it was disruptive. Remember, what's the whole context of him even talking to Timothy? We got bad leaders. We got bad teaching going in the church. You got to get all this garbage out of here and you got to straighten things up. People are teaching some bogus stuff out here. Stop it. Oh, teaching was getting weird. And now somebody's being told not to teach. Why shouldn't they teach? Well, if it's not the right stuff you're teaching, you're not allowed to do it. So here's what's interesting. The context of all the other times that Paul refers to silencing were what? For orderliness. Whatever's going on here was out of order. Hang on to that thought. Submission and authority over a man or a husband, right? Women should be quiet and submissive. To who? To their husbands. All right, cool. So here's what he's saying. The answer to bad teaching is silence. The answer to bad authority is submissiveness. So it suggests there's something weird about the authority he's mentioning, right? What does authority mean? This one, actually, I'm not trying to mess with you. (laughs) The normal word for authority is exousia. He doesn't use that. He uses oftentimes. Oftentimes means It comes from the word, a man's armor. It means to domineer, exercise full authority over, to rule as a lord, to lord it over, and it's even used for murder. I don't think that's a normal authority, y'all. I think there's something weird about this authority. When you take the odd word for authority, which means to dominate negatively, then you would have to say, well, how are they dominating their husbands negatively? They're talking and teaching in a dominating, unhealthy way. And you go, 
oh, that's why they always have to be silent. That's never allowed in any church. Wives are never allowed to dominate their husbands, talk down to them, and destroy them with their words. It's never allowed. Why? Because there's a hierarchy in the home and women are not allowed to reverse it and dominate their husbands. Oh, wait a second. That starts making more sense. All right, let's keep going. Remember, the context is false teaching. What are specific problems for Timothy? Well, he has these false teachers going on, right? It's very specific. Paul says, hey, prayer's gonna solve things, but there's a couple things that are wrong here. I want the husbands to stop arguing and start praying. Does that sound general or very specific? Pretty specific. The answer to what? All problems in a church is guys stop arguing and start praying. I think they probably mean the guys were arguing with someone. Who were the husbands arguing with? Their wives. So what do the women's need to do? Stop dressing for pride stop demonstrating no self-control, do some good stuff, and stop dominating your husbands. Oh, shoot. So, stop the ladies from trying to dominate and tell their husbands what to do. Why is that a problem again? Oh, that's right. Where's the church? Ephesus. Anything interesting about Ephesus? Well, it happens to be one of the seven wonders of the world. Huh, what's there? The temple of Artemis. Artemis is only female-dominated. The whole religion is female-dominated. So all the priestesses are female. Then you have the modern-day Roman woman of Paul's day, of which much study has been done, that the new thing was for the, the new women's lib movement in Rome was you start exercising your authority dominate your husbands, dominate anybody, don't let anybody tell you what to do. And you know what? All that whole, I'm gonna wear my hair this way and I'm gonna put a covering on, forget that. Throw that off, ladies. We gotta burn some stuff. Like, what are we doing here? Well, you're getting people saved out of that entire environment coming into the church. And they're like, what is with all these little mamby-pamby women here? Man, what do you, tell your husband what's up. Paul's like, yeah, we don't do that. That's not right. You're way out of line. And I'm never going to allow that in any of my churches. I don't care who you think you are. I don't care how liberated you feel. We don't dominate each other in Christianity. We mutually submit, and we are a servant leader organization. So if you think you're going to dominate, you don't belong here. Wow. Here's the great irony, y'all. This is Paul's big women victory passage. And everybody sees negative. Why? Would you look at verse 11? What are the first four words? A woman should learn. And we missed it. Yeah, yeah so what? It's like women should learn, a wife should learn. And so Women weren't allowed to learn. Christianity came in and created that. Paul was lifting women up here. Guys, ladies, listen, listen, you're a part of this. I need you to learn too. No, stop mouthing off. 
We're all trying to do this together. But I need you in the room. But we missed it. The bottom line to all of this, you guys, when I say it's cultural, I'm not saying that because I don't want to deal with the reality of it. I'm telling you, it cannot mean what you thought it meant. It's simply inaccurate context-wise. I'm telling you, it was very specific, and Paul had very specific reasons why. This comes up to the big question. Would Paul really culturally adjust? Yeah, he would. It was okay in one environment, not okay in another. How do we know that? Well, I'm gonna use an uncomfortable uh, example. Acts 16, one through five. He tells his adult buddy, Timothy, to get circumcised. Why? Uh, We're gonna go minister to Jews and they freak out about that kind of thing. Yeah, but Paul, you just taught me in three different passages, circumcision doesn't matter. Oh, it doesn't. Then why am I doing this? Because it's a block to the gospel. Hey, Titus, come here for a second. Dude, I am not getting circumcised. I'm letting you know right now. No, dude, we're talking to Gentiles. You don't have to. Timothy's like, why is that not my calling? Is Paul cultural? Of course he is. I become all things to all men that I might save some. To the weak I become weak. I will always morph to whatever culture I'm in. That's what I do. So yeah, sometimes it's okay in church for this, but you know what? These ladies are going off and I'm not having it. And this other church, that's not even a problem. Okay. Y'all, it can't mean women can't lead in the church. Why? Because Paul taught the priesthood of all believers. Galatians 3, 25 through 29. That does not change roles. It does not negate gender value. All that still matters. But there's not inequality. And what did I say? The head of the church, according to Ephesians 5, 23, is Jesus. I'm gonna reiterate this, and then this is not being flippant. We are all wives in the church. There's only one bridegroom, and you're not it. And if he's the head, we all submit. Imagine a man had multiple wives. Abraham had multiple wives. Jacob had multiple wives. Which wives had to submit to him? All of them. Which wives were more important than other wives? None of them. Who cares who's sitting at the pulpit if our head is Jesus Christ and we're all wives? Who cares who's in the boardroom if he's the only one that matters and we don't? 1 Corinthians 3, 7, neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. There is one to be glorified, and I'm not sure it's a human being in the church. Bottom line, Ephesians 5, 17 through 21. You guys, we need to minister to one another, submit to one another, because it all goes back to the Trinity. Total equality, 
different roles, gender matters. Let's just get our environments right. I'm never throwing anything Paul says out. I just think it's a better reading.